Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Teach Me to Talk with Laura and Kate. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech language pathologist. I am Laura. Oh. <laughs> I was going to say Laura Hensport. I'm excited about the coat. I hope she's not listening or she'll know what she's getting for Christmas. I am Kate Hensler, Laura Hensler's mother, uh, developmental interventionist, calling from Louisville, Kentucky. How are you, Laura? I have Laura on Well, I'm a little rattled after that, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's so funny. I thought you were going to say, I'm Laura Mize, and then I thought it was going to be, oh, will the real Laura Mize please stand up? You know that, remember that show? <laughs> I, yeah, I do remember. But I think anybody listening could determine who's Laura and who's Kate. It's, it's an accent thing. <laughs> Hey, don't knock my southern accent. I can't take I'm it today. I'm knocking my northern nasalness. <laughs> That's your southern accent. Hey, you just came from someplace you didn't even sound southern, did you? You know what? Somebody, two different people told me in my wonderful conferences in Louisiana this week that they think it's easier to listen to the conference presenter when she has a southern accent like mine. So, hmm. And I have always told you that I think you have a very great accent. You always think I'm teasing you, but I'm not. Now, I'm not all Southern accents to my ear, but yours is. So, Well, it was just funny for them to say that. But I had so much fun in Louisiana. I need. I feel like I need a big shirt that says, I heart Louisiana. That's what I put on my Facebook page because I had the best time. New Orleans on Thursday and Baton Rouge on Friday, and I had the most diverse conference attendees that I've ever had. Young uh, speech pathologists and special instructors, and that's what they call developmental interventionists and developmental therapists in Louisiana, and just really young ones, really ones that have had, oh, decades more birthdays than us, Kate, you know, and just every every level, people, again, that were brand spanking new, people that had been, that had practiced, that had been out of the field for, say, 10 or so years, and then they're just getting back in. I had an audiologist who I'm embarrassed to say, I don't know what country she was from, but she's she's been a full-time mom for 11 years, and she's trying to get her CEUs, and she's interested in pediatrics. So she came to my conference. She drove from, like, four hours away to come, had lots of people that drove long distances, and it was so much fun. We had Big crowds every day, and just I we're going to talk about some of those great questions that I got. But if any of my new Louisiana friends are listening, I meant it when I said I had so much fun those two days because they were great, great, great audiences. You really seem to. You're always excited about after your your uh, oh, what do you call them? Your conferences. But this was at a, maybe an all time high. You were like, oh, it was so good. So. She means it. She's not just saying it. Yeah, we had really, really fun days. It was really fun. But before we get into all that, I want to say if anyone is listening, and in Missouri, my last conference of the year is going to be in St. Louis at the Hilton Garden Inn in Chesterfield um, in St. Louis, and I think that's like a little suburb on the, I think it's on the east side. I, I shouldn't even say what direction, but it's right outside or inside or just part of St. Louis. Right here, let's say that. (laughs) Yeah. 
So please, 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 if you were thinking about coming, this Friday would be a great opportunity, and you can register at teachmetotalk.com. And I have not taken the early registration discount off the link, so you can still get the 20 buck cheaper rate. So please register, and I hope to see you there. Right, that oh, was my first coming Friday, huh? Yeah, yeah, December 10th. Oh. That's going to wrap it up for the road show for this year. But listen to what happened. I don't think I've told you this. I finally got approval from Kentucky's First Steps Cabinet of Family and Cert. What do we call that? The Kentucky oh. Cabinet <laughs> the people that do. The family cabinet, and blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I always confuse it with Indiana. Um, yeah, the first, step, the first steps people in Kentucky, I finally got approval for our conference to be, um, to meet both the contract requirements for typical development and atypical development continuing education for our next round of contracts. So I'm so excited to announce that Louisville date. And I had it right in front of me, and now I have lost the sheet of paper that says the date. Shoot, it was a green sticky, but it's uh, I think it's the third Friday in January, and so I know some of our local friends listen to the podcast because they make little jokes to me about it. So um, that training or that conference is going to be fun, and we're going to do um, kind of the normal stuff plus enough different stuff to um, count as the typical development, and that's the one that's so hard to get for. Do you say the third uh, we Friday in January? I think it's the third Friday in January. I'm pretty sure. And then the fourth Friday, if we happen to have snow that day, you know, in Louisville, if it's just a little bit of snow, we still go to stuff. But if it's like three or four inches, Louisville shuts down. <laughs> so if it's an well, your inclement weather day. Well, friends are laughing at you right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, and my southern friends say, you mean it doesn't shut down at the mere hint of the first snowflake? No, in Louisville we are right a happy medium. Judging from hearing you talk about our northern states, and then knowing how it was when I lived in the Deep South, uh, they were, let me tell you, in Birmingham when we stayed there over the weekend, and then in Louisiana both, too, they were getting down to 32. They were getting down to freezing, and it was a big deal on the news. They were saying it was record-breaking cold, and when Johnny and I got in New Orleans on Thursday, it was 54, and neither he nor I had on jackets. We, I had on a little cardigan over a T-shirt, and he had on just a long sleeve shirt, and we pulled up to get gas, and people had on sock hats and their Uggs and gloves, <laughs> and it was 54 degrees in beautiful sunshine. So there you go. Everything is relative, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah. Laura, yeah. in case so the, if it is the third Friday, that's January 21st. Okay. I'm pretty What's sure right that's the date. I took that sheet of paper. I was walking through the house with it, so who knows where it might be right now. I'm sure I'll find it after the show, but I'll announce that next week, too. And the registration for that will be up on the website next week. So any of our Kentucky First Steps providers who are wanting to come to the conference and especially to get that typical development um, training out of the way, that'll be then in Louisville. So I hope we have a nice crowd for that. Okay, let's move on. Today's topic is talking about some of those great, great, great questions that therapists asked in Louisiana. And some of these things we've talked about on the show before, 
But they were so good and just kind of the context might have been a little bit different than what we had talked about previously or let me just say recently on the podcast. So I thought that we would revisit that. And I shared this with Kate yesterday, but I want to tell you again, Kate, about the people that would say, I love the podcast. And one person, you know, in New Orleans said, you know, Miss Laura, where's your friend Kate? And I said, well, I think she's back home in Louisville. But uh, it was really nice to hear that we um, already have some friends there and some therapists that were already listening and a really, really nice lady in Baton Rouge who reminded me of UK. She was so well-dressed and so put together. Oh. and <laughs> She said, well, oh, I listen to I know. She, she reminded me of you. And after she walked off and I said to Johnny, she's a Kate, isn't she? I said, she's a special instructor. And look, she's so well-dressed. She's just like Kate. So she said that she listened to the podcast and, and had some, such nice things to say about it. So I thought that was great. And she said the funniest thing to her is when I say something and then you say something and lengthen it. And then she said, and then, Laura, you try to lengthen it more. And then you go <laughs> on and on and on. And then Kate lengthens it. And then you come back and say how that, how that goes. And Kate interrupts, cuts you <laughs> off in midstream. Hey, Laura, we haven't said, I don't think, yet that if anybody wanted to call, whether you're from Louisiana or Missouri or anywhere in between, the, the call-in number is one seven one eight seven six six four three three two. And we do love yes. callers, so don't love it. And we haven't had a live caller in several weeks. No, but and let we me thought get, we'd get lots of these Sunday callers. But I think that we will every time. So I like this time slot, and I hope we will. But anyway, she said, "Let me finish the story." She said that the funniest thing is when I say, "Kate, are you there?" And then you kind of go, yeah, I'm still here. And she said it just reminds her of her talking to her friends, how they do, how they blah, blah, on. Maybe you interrupted me because you didn't want me to tell the rest of that story. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, sometimes I got to get a word in edgewise. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, sometimes okay. you, you give me that. Did you have anything you wanted to say about that? And I'm like, mm, no, I don't think so. I think no. I'm talked out on that subject. Think we've said it all. Is. All right. Well, the subjects tonight are going to be easy to talk to because they're near and dear to our hearts. So. Exactly. And so the first one, and we had a big discussion about this in Baton Rouge on Friday, is the whole as an interventionist, as an early interventionist, as a speech language pathologist, or. Um. Developmental intervention, as we say in Kentucky, other states call them different things. But the whole, do you take toys to a child's home to play or do you not take toys? The whole toy bag debate. And I am really clear in the conferences on saying that I believe that materials matter and that you have to be prepared for a session. Just like the example that I use in the conference is you would not go into a doctor's office and him say, uh, by the way, you got a thermometer laying around here, or can I borrow your blood pressure cuff? He has it. He's prepared. The office is ready for the visit. And so I just feel like as early interventionists that we should have some tricks and some tools available to us as well. And I made the little joke that in Kentucky, Several years ago, they really started talking more about being more consultative or the consultative model and didn't really want us to touch children and certainly frowned on us taking toys into children's homes because they wanted it to be completely the natural environment. And I think you and I both feel the same way 
and saying, you know, don't tie my hands when you expect me to do a good job, and I have to have toys and materials that are developmentally appropriate. And in some of the homes that we work in, the toys are not developmentally appropriate, and they're not readily available for us to use. And so I understand the premise behind the policy and that you want to show families that it doesn't take a lot of bells and whistles and that it doesn't take anything that they don't have, but I feel a little unprepared and, frankly, a little lazy if I don't prepare enough to, you always laugh when I say that, to take things into a session. Well, because I always so wonder that is, people who don't take toys are thinking when you say it, but I, I don't disagree. So. They're gasping. Yeah, they're gasping. <gasps> I can't believe she said mm. that. And that's what somebody else said about our show. You you and Kate say what everybody mm. thinks. And I said, yeah, that gets us in a lot of trouble sometimes. But that's how I really feel about my toys. And I know, you know, again, I joke about it, and I hope I'm not going to get a letter tomorrow from the Kentucky cabinet <laughs> telling me to punch <laughs> me with my toys. But that's They're how I coming to, re- to confiscate your toys, Laura. Yeah, the well, toy that's your joke. I don't know if you ever got to your punch to your punchline of your joke, did you? Well, I just said it. That you know, the toy until <laughs> the toy police come, I'm taking the toys because I feel like that's what I need to do my job. And again, I've done situations where I don't take the toys. Like if it's a monsoon, and I think, okay, I am barely going to be able to get me inside the door. And I, there's no way that I can struggle to get the toy back inside the door when it's, you know, pouring. There have been situations in homes that for one reason or another I've opted not to take toys in, whether it be, you know, that there maybe it's an at-home daycare and I'm seeing lots of children at the same time or even in a regular daycare and I think, okay, I'm going to be swarmed. You know, the whole class of two-year-olds is going to jump me the second I'm in the door. You know, and there certainly have been children who I feel that aren't ready to play with toys yet that we that we're doing lots of sensory stuff and lots of movement games and so I think that the toys almost make them shut down more. But as a general everyday practicality, I'm prepared. I have things to take with me and more often than that, I feel like I want to show parents what works. And if I'm scrambling around trying to find that and flying by the seat of my pants, I don't feel like I can be as effective as I need to be. And so that is why I still think you can make a good case for taking toys. And at the same time, you need to be telling parents, okay, look, this toy, you can do that with you know, these toys that you have here at home. And that's not to say that I don't ever play with what a kid has or what a kid's interested in that he's currently playing with. But more often than not, novelty makes the child want to participate with you. They want to see what new little thing you have in your bag versus what they've been playing with all day. And the big premise, the reason that state programs don't want you to take it in is they want to make sure that you're doing a lot of parent education. And anybody who's listened to this podcast for more than right now would know that I am all about parent education. And I can do that with my own things, their things, and make it work. And so I don't feel like that I'm I'm violating the premise of the policy, which is educate parents. And I, and I think I can do that at the same time, still take my own things and still be prepared. I know you're not going to not have anything to say about this, Kate, so your turn. <laughs> I was being very patient. I was waiting my turn. Um, I actually actually gave this some kind of not serious thought, but some thought. And um, the first 
first point I would bring up is that, you know, I think in a perfect world, every house would be fully equipped with all of the toys available or a nice variety of toys that were organized and put together and in, you know, um, good order so that that might be possible. But, you know, I think if you uh, assume, and it's true, that kids that we see aren't generally um, the kids who just automatically like to play and like to play with a wide variety of things, you know, whether whether we're talking about seeing an autistic child or a child who's apraxic or just, um, you know, a sensory kid who's scattered and doesn't focus on one thing for more than a couple minutes. You know, there's hardly a scenario where the kids we see are, quote-unquote, easy to play with. They don't necessarily you know, automatically gravitate to whatever it is. Some of them are quite um, quite particular, and and lots of them don't really even know what they like, frankly, you know. Or how to <laughs> so, play. Or, or how, how to, to play. play. Right. Yeah. With it. And so many of them, um, and for no other reason than parents, you know, like I said, these aren't necessarily easy kids or it's not obvious what they like or what they like tends to be bells and whistles toys. So they have lots of toys that light up and save ABCs and flash numbers and kids push, 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 push the buttons and they may not even get beyond that and parents don't always realize that, boy, your child's two now. He really should be doing a lot more than pushing the buttons all the time, but that's what they do and parents don't really you know, it's not obvious to them that I should get rid of those and, and encourage my child to do more developmentally appropriate things. So my first argument point of, of argument would be, you know, we work with relatively hard kids, and particularly in the beginning, um, right. we're trying to figure out what they like ourselves, but you better believe we're going to use our, use our best tricks. You know, we're going to take in... Right our best things and hope that a handful of those things are really going to get them because they don't necessarily want to come sit and play with Lauren Kate, despite the fact that we try and be really fun. Um, sometimes we need that hook, you know, right. <laughs> and to, to say you can't take it, mm, you know, I just think that's not going to help me any. So that would be my first point. Um, the other thing is that... Is there a point number for- two? Oh, yes. I have another bullet point on this topic. Another (laughs) thing would be um, that particularly, well, well, for any any specific child that we work with, you know, we want to be able to kind of control those toys because we're going to put demands on them to communicate in one way or another. And it's pretty hard to to control a, a child's toys that he has access to. You know, one thing, they're not packaged the way we want them packaged. We we tend to put everything in a big Ziploc bag, and we're going to divvy out the pieces as we as they request them, um, you know, whether it's with a sign or a word or a gesture. We want to be able to control it. And if a child has a big old toy box of toys or, you know, a pile of toys in the corner or they're strewn about his room, it's pretty hard, you know, you're spending half your time looking for the pieces, let alone having exactly. any control. Yeah, and uh, even if um, you find them, it's pretty hard to convince a child that the toy that's his, you're going to control it now. You know? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> nope, you're gonna have to work for it. 
And and because it's no, it isn't novel. Even if it's something they really really like, the odds are they're going to blow you off and and go the other direction because they have access to it twenty four seven. They don't care enough. It's not interesting right. or novel enough to them. So they just kind of say, "Forget it, lady. I know I'll have that the minute you walk out the door," because most right. parents do give access to all of their kids' toys because they want them to play with them, and that's that's reasonable. But for our um, special purposes, we want acts, we, we want control of them, and it's right. hard to control a big, you know, collection of stuff that isn't already in bags for us. Exactly. I do have another. I do have another one or two. Um, Go ahead. Can, I'm so can, impressed. You, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I think I'm uh, well, going to add this to the presentation and say this is Kate's this is Kate's portion of the conference. <laughs> <laughs> the other one we've alluded to, and and this probably has affected me more than you, Laura. But um, you know, I do go to a lot of homes or wherever daycares, for instance. Daycares, in my opinion, are notorious for having nothing but junk. You know, right. I, I had a situation last week where. I went to a daycare for the first time, and I went in the quote-unquote toddler room, and I was in a grouchy mood anyway, I'll be honest, and it just was like they had about 20 things that were dirty, broken, broken, uh, yeah, broke, nasty. Half of them were bells and whistles toys anyway, which I don't like, and they didn't even have batteries. I mean, oh, the CSA, they had two CSA, (laughs) neither one were, you could pull the lever, but they didn't talk. I mean, I just was like, oh, yeah. Which thing am I going to – I finally settled on blocks. And normally I take kids, I take um, toys into a daycare, to be honest. But that time, since it was the child's first time, I didn't. I thought, okay, I'm going to stay with them in the room. And save what's so, going on. Um, yeah. yeah, I settled on blocks. And the, the child I was seeing and the three other kids in the room, and I played with blocks. And they had a big old um, milk cart, carton full of blocks. No, Big old milk carton with about mm, 20 blocks in it. Okay. Yeah. You can't build a very big tower or house with 20 blocks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I just, oh. I and there were four kids. You said and there were four, four kids. kids. And you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we each got to put four blocks on or five blocks on. I mean, it was just so pathetic. You know, I, this is yeah. a daycare. People pay money for this, you know. Anyway, that's a diff- we can do that that uh, soap opera later. But the point is, lots of homes I go to or daycares or wherever, um, you know, we go where kids are. So wherever they are is where we see them. And however it is is how it is. And heaven knows I overlook, you know, things that sometimes I can't even believe I overlook. But it, it some kids, I mean, a fair number of my kids, they might have a baby doll, no Anything to go with it. Well, when no I take my baby doll, of course, I mean, I have a brush and a spoon and a bowl and a hat and shoes and a blanket and powder and a Band-Aid. And, I mean, I have, you know, accessory after accessory after accessory after accessory to make the baby doll play fun, and they've got an old bratty baby doll, you know. Right. You know, they have a puzzle and one piece. They have, you know, heights. Like, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's kind of hard to, and what am I going to say to the mom? Would you mind um, buying a whole new set of toys and keeping them organized so that I have something to use while I'm here? Now, you know, that's just not 
realistic, and I know that. Right. So I lug my big, huge bag of toys in there, and they think, Sam has arrived for an hour, and it's... <laughs> And it's, it's wonderful. You know, it's this, wonderful. This, is the, this is the argument. This is what the therapist's name who said this was Lynn, and I respected her so much. Again, she reminded me so much of you, so put together, so articulate, so great, and she sat on the back with her friends, which where do we sit when we go to a conference together, Kay? <laughs> the back row? Yeah, we've gotten called up to the front row before, well, haven't just we? just be glad they thought it was good or they would have been talking through the whole thing. <laughs> well, see, talking about they were something talking else. But they were talking about what we do. You know, when we go right. to a good conference and we sit there together and we say, oh, my gosh, that's such a great idea. I'm going to use this with this kid. Or, you, or you'll remember a story about a kid maybe that you shared. And I think it was a group of women that they were all from the same, uh, I think they were from a school district together. And that, and I didn't mind that. They were in the back. They weren't bothering me. And I told them, you guys remind me of me when I go with my friends to conferences. <laughs> but this is her point about that. She said she feels guilty. When she goes into a home and she takes nice things and then she leaves. And that's her point. She said, I just feel like I'm only giving the children fun or only giving them these, this access to this and then I take those great things away. And she, this is how else she reminded me of you, Kate. She said she buys, she's bought a lot of families' toys, which I know you've done that too. You might be too embarrassed to talk about how generous you are and what a big heart you have with those families, with those sweet little babies who don't have anything to play with. And she said that she has t- bought toys for families, and she's even gone as far as to, like, buy a box and help mom try to organize them. And then she'll go back a week later, and they're not there, and that's discouraging for her. I was going to say, and how's that working? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but see, I mean, I know you might be too embarrassed to say it, but you've bought a lot of toys for a lot of kids. And so she said, you know, I just that makes me feel guilty, and I know that they, the families maybe can't buy that. And I understand that, but haven't you, Kate, had families that were among your poorest families, but they still spend money on toys that are completely inappropriate? And so part of taking toys in is showing them, hey, this is a better option. And it's not, she said, the nice things, the nice toys. I don't know if she meant, you know, electronic things and stuff. We don't even use that. We don't use Toys. Little Linguist is the only real electronic toy I have, but that's because it targets language so darn well. And it's about, I mean, that toy's not even produced anymore. It's an old toy. But it's not even, you know, to me, it's not that it's new or that it's nice. It's that it's organized and I have all the pieces and, again, like you said, have a way to hook a kid. So I understand the argument. I understand the state policy argument with that. We should do parent training, and you can't really say, you know, here's this toy, and this is how you use it when it's yours and take it away. But I I hardly ever do a session that parent training isn't a big part of what I'm doing. And and truth be told, and again, I know I'm completely spoiled and have, you know, a hotty-totty case slowed down, blah, 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 or, you know, have. And a lot of parents go buy the things that, that we've used in there because they work so well, and that's part of the educational process. And so I think that's another argument for taking them so that you can show them. But I understood her concern that she felt like she was in some way being mean or pointing out a family's lack. Uh, But at the same time, I think you can, can make a point, gosh, I bet there's some resources, and I bet, you know, I bet when there's, I bet those kids are still going to get something for Christmas. And what Absolutely. better way to direct a mom to say 
this is a better alternative. And let me show you how great your kid can do with this, what we can do with it language-wise, and then how much more mature his play is and how how many rungs we can move him up that developmental ladder when we use appropriate materials instead of struggling to find something appropriate. And she was great about saying how creative she is with going to the kitchen and finding something in the kitchen she can use, and I think that's phenomenal. And I think if she obviously has a knack for that, she's thought about it, Again, I haven't seen her in action, but I believe from what she talked about that she does the kind of therapy that we do. But at the same time, (laughs) I like to know that I'm ready and that we're going to get the most bang for our buck during that hour. So not all therapists can do that. Not all therapists can kind of do it on the fly, and I respect those that can, but there are a whole lot of people that can't and that therapist-wise, that don't really make an effort and just go and kind of sit and talk to mom for about an hour. And I don't think that's real effective either. So that's why I still think we can make a case for going with the toys. And you see that all the time with the teams that you serve on. I do. A lot of times. Well, let me say this. As far as what Lynn had to say, feeling guilty, my my sarcastic but really also honest response to that would be, I feel guilty whether I took toys or not because well, you're still leaving you're, you're you're leaving those kids in an environment that really probably isn't fit for children to be raised in but the fact is that's where they live and I don't right. think because they don't have those toys every day that's a reason not to take them you know I mean it's like saying well you only get to go to Disney World once a year so that's too bad you don't go every day, so you shouldn't go at all. I mean, I just don't get the real right. reasoning there. Um, and I do feel, I mean, I felt terrible when I left that little boy at that daycare on Friday. You know, I just thought, right. I, I, I leave a lot of places feeling guilty because, the, right. you know, they are really not uh, great places for kids to be, whether it's a nasty daycare or a home that's that's unfit, but that's the reality. And we we go in there, and it doesn't matter what it's like, and you know we overlook it and we deal with it, and we make the most of the situation. But I don't think um, toys, one way or another, if you have a more therapeutic, more productive session, um, that's really what matters. And typically, and occasionally, I'll have a child who is upset because I'm confiscating a toy, but normally not. And normally, if I do, it's beginning in the beginning of you know my time with that child and once right. they understand Kate's coming back she'll bring that cool thing next week um right. you know and and here's here's a scenario um not an unhealthy home a very nice home very great mother um first time mother and she, her little girl is what I say um appears to be a praxic Um, I haven't been seeing her too terribly long, but she, uh, I've been taking a variety of things, just kind of figuring out what she likes and what what may work with her. And um, she is a child who actually really likes books, but, you you know, I'm not really on books for it. She is. She really likes books, and she has lots of them. And her mom's great about reading them to her, but in my experience, Books are really not a great tool for getting apraxic kids to talk in the beginning. You know, that's not enough of a hook, and it's too um, sedentary or too, um, it's not 
hyped up enough. You know, even, <laughs> I right. try and make them hyper and get them zipped up on books, but it's just it's a pretty pretty mellow exchange. It can be a wonderful exchange and, and a very worthwhile exchange, but if you're trying to get a kid to communicate, I don't know. I have never had much luck with, with using books for kids who are practic, you know. So anyway, this no. child, she has some books, a lot of books, and um, a few other little things. She watches some DVDs and stuff, but mostly she kind of likes books. She had a baby doll but no accessories. Well, let me tell you, when I started taking my stuff, she was like, woo-hoo, you know? Yeah. And, <laughs> and that gets her hyped up kind of enough to try. Kid. Yeah, she's a yeah. real mellow, focused kid anyway. A low-arousal really kind of, child. Yes, kind of a low-arousal kid. Cute, sweet, smart, but pretty apraxic. And talk, nothing. In the beginning, we're starting to get some success now. But and her mom, like I said, who's really a you know she's highly educated. She's she's very hands on. She's a loving mommy. She she said, um, well, no wonder she didn't play with very much. I didn't really have anything like that. And you know the child's just over two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she just my you know, mom says no. No, she didn't know. And she said she they do have some bells and whistles things. That apparently she has a mother in law who buys all the Z Tech stuff, you know. Um, and the child yeah. the child will use those some, but not too much, thankfully. But, you know, it was just a matter of she didn't really I, I don't think she's really been around other little kids that much and her child is um an easy passive child who does have her interests but they weren't really um things she hadn't really instinctively moved up herself and the mom didn't really know well now she's you know on a search for this and a search for that (laughs) and she hasn't gone crazy at all but you know like she got the baby doll accessories last week she had the brush and she had a hat and she had a blankie for the baby and she because she saw how much more the child enjoyed it you know and i I talked about you, you need to get this and you need to get that the other thing is I'm big on getting things secondhand. You know, I like in my, my downtime in between kids, I'm all over the city, and I've happened on to lots of little fun resale shops, and I'm certainly not above. And a lot of times I'll tell moms about those places. You know, I can find great things in those. So it's well, not that's always exactly, a matter of a lot of money. Yeah, and that's exactly what I said in the conference. I said, you know, and if you are kind of that social worker therapist, <laughs> Who feels like you really want to do that? You know, Kate knows every nook and cranny of those kinds of places in Louisville where she's at the thrift store and the Goodwill here and the Goodwill there. And, you know, you you uh, are super, a super bargain hunter. And so they were talking about that, too. But it was it was a big discussion. You know, in Louisiana, it's certainly been a big discussion in Kentucky. It's been a big discussion in Indiana, in Ohio, in Missouri, everywhere that I've been. And therapists really struggle with do I do it or do I not. And I think you've made some very good points today for why we do that uh, and for why we still, you know, kind of stand by that. But if a therapist feels like she can be productive and effective without it, and you really feel guilty violating your state guidelines, well, more power to you. <laughs> That's your opinion. Yeah. We, well, can you see, know, we can all be adults and have different opinions, yeah, and different right. philosophies. So, yeah. 
Well, and you alluded to this too, Laura. Laura, let's be honest. You and I will be dragging our toy bag behind our wheelchairs when we're. <laughs> we will have those toy bags. No, I'm going to hook it on my walker. I'm going to hook it on my walker when I'm going into one of those shopping carts so we can use it as a walker. Yeah, I mean, I do hear this a fair amount because I, you know, whether sometimes I'm on teams with other therapists. And frankly, it probably happens the most when I'm on a team with a speech therapist and the mom will say to me, he really doesn't play very much with her. Right. And I say, really? And it's a child who's doing pretty well with me. You know, he's he's really right. engaged. I'm able to keep his attention. We're making some progress. And I say, well, why? What's what do you why is that do you think and not all every time but uh, a fairly high percentage of the time their answer is this well she doesn't bring any toys and she right. really just kind of sits and he plays with his toys and a lot of times those same therapists not always so I'm, I know this is a generalization but a lot of times those are the therapists who kind of quote unquote narrate the child's play yeah and that, that well, you know I call that, that mindless narrate Mindless narration. Block. Green block. You pushed the A button again. Oh, you pushed it again. (laughs) And yeah, a lot of times those are the same therapists. And kids, they don't really, as I said, my first point of interest was these are not easy kids to engage. These are not easy kids to get to play with you to um, right. have social interaction with you, and if all right. you're doing is sitting off to the side uh, giving a, a play-by-play in, with words of what the child is doing, you put the dog in the house. Dog in the house. I mean, you know, kids don't really give a hoot. Lots of our kids well, are really good at filtering out language. They don't really exactly. attend to language all that well. Some do. Exactly. Okay, practice kids probably do, but, you know, the other kids, they don't. But how effective is that anyway, even with an apraxic kid? Because you're not doing anything to elicit any attempts, any verbal attempts when you're doing that narration right. like oh, that. I, and if no, they were I good imitators, you wouldn't be there. Yeah, and if right. they were just going to imitate that kind of language and it'd be okay, you wouldn't be there. And the first kind of kid that you were, that's with the apraxic kids, the first kind of kid that you were talking about, and I say this in the conferences, you might as well be the Charlie Brown teacher because that's what you sound like to those kids. It doesn't really matter right. what you're saying. They've tuned out language. It's not meaningful to them yet. So that mindless narration is just completely ineffective. And why would you want to go and and spend an hour? I just don't understand. I don't understand. I guess it's easier for a therapist to try to do that than really work to engage a hard kid. But I know I would rather break out in a sweat and be exhausted and need 15 minutes in a Diet Coke to recover (laughs) than to go do a session like that. I would feel completely uh, ineffective and and certainly would get no fulfillment whatsoever. If I don't have a kid uh looking at me and their eyes aren't twinkling and they're not smiling or, you know, doing something back and forth, I think this is a disaster. And to sit there I would feel like a dud. Yeah, like a a dud. A total lazy dud. But that's just us. But you can, I, I mean, can't even the beauty of being adults, you can disagree 
I mean, someone can disagree with us, and, you know, if they feel like they're effective and can do it, well, okay. We're just presenting the other side of the argument, and apparently we feel pretty darn impassioned about it because we've talked about it for, you know, darn near 40 minutes now. I said these are the subjects that are near and dear to hearts. Laura, we should say um, this um, is so near and dear to your heart because you are writing a darn book about toys and playing. Um, and, and I don't want to paraphrase what exactly, I know what it is in theory, but I don't know specifically because you haven't sent me the rough draft yet. So when you do, right. I, I be very knowledgeable. <laughs> but, I mean, it's not, um, that's how passionate you are, and I try and be as passionate or nearly as passionate. But it's not just having the right toys, it's what you do with them um, to make them therapeutic. And so I, 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 you know, thought it was necessary to say this is how big a deal it is to you, Laura. You're writing a book about it, but why don't you write a darn book about it? With how a to real, do it. a yeah. real honest, your second book. Who, who, who yeah. knew? Actually, I knew. <laughs> That's why I was so sad when you quit being an in the trenches therapist. I knew. Anyway, good for you. Bad for me. Don't. I'm still well, seeing kids, so that's you, like I'm not you, seeing any kids. I'm just doing other things, too. You've moved yeah. on. You're branching out. And one of the things yeah. is, of course, all your DVDs and your website, but you've written a book about um, uh, engaging play. kids, social play right. stuff. But now you're working, or I'm sure tomorrow you'll be back at it, getting back on the, the toy book. So tell us about the book and what, what exactly it's going to be. Well, it's going to be a book about how to use toys to target receptive and expressive language delays. But you know what? I won't get to work on it till tomorrow afternoon because tomorrow morning I'm seeing two of my favorite children in the whole entire world. So I do, I, lest anyone think that I'm not still a practicing clinician, I will be seeing children in the morning and get on the book in the afternoon. You're just alluding to I'm doing other things. Right. Um, in addition to seeing some kids, yeah. I just that makes me a little scared if you're if anybody would take that wrong. I'm still seeing oh, kids no, too. No, I'm just no, not no. seeing as many children. Yeah. No, I was just saying um, move, move beyond just seeing kids. Not that there's anything wrong with seeing kids because that's what I do all week <laughs> long and what lots And what do. I've done for a real long time and for right. what everybody else says. You know what? We have had a caller and I can't tell. I think they've muted themselves on purpose, but we're going to see if they wanted to chime in on this discussion. Hi, caller. I've let you sit there a long time. Are you still there? Yes, yeah, it's Trisha. Hello. Hi. Hi, Trisha. How are you? Hi. I'm great. A caller. Thank you. Yay. Yes, Did I you want to? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm a developmental therapist in Indiana. Oh, uh-huh. I used to be that too. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm in Kentucky. Along with your discussion about play-based learning, I have a hard time convincing parents the value of pretend play and imaginative play. Can you give me exactly. some tips on encouraging? You know, that type of um, play with, um, because I feel like a lot of times with a developmental therapist, they really don't see the value of me in the first place as much as a speech therapist or when they would really understand the goals. Yeah. Kate, do you want to do you want to take a swing at that <laughs> or do you want me to chime in my opinion while you formulate your thoughts on what you're going to say? Okay, you chime in and I'll back you up. <laughs> this is what I think, Tricia. First of all, 
when kids are ready for pretend play, that's a little easier to introduce. And that's what this is what Katie is talking about with the with the new book that I'm writing because it talks about kind of the hierarchy of teaching play. Sometimes we expect kids, and I'm not saying this is what's going on with you and any specific child you would see or know because I, you know, don't know you or your caseload. But sometimes we expect children to be able to do pretend play when they're not quite there yet cognitively. And so the reason they are not really doing that kind of play is because we haven't kind of worked them up to that. And so that's kind of what the new book is going to be about, kind of taking that hierarchy. That being said, I start with teaching pretend play with things that are pretty functional, like Kate just talked about with the baby dolls and sure. with doing things that would be more like real-life activities. And then while we're doing that, I say to parents, listen, the reason that we're working on this kind of play is because, you know, as a, and you would say as a developmental therapist, you're targeting those cognitive skills, and I relate everything to talking. So I would say if we don't really make sure that he understands how he's playing and that he can have new ideas, then we're going to put words on top of those ideas that's going to help him be more likely to talk. And so I think even as developmental therapists, you, when you relate everything to that parent's number one goal, which is usually talking, and you talk about how your therapy supports that and how without the cognitive basis for that and pretend play being a really important skill with children using symbolic play, because after all, words are just symbols. They just represent what we are communicating, and that if kids don't understand that through play first, they don't really have a prayer of being able to understand and use those words um, to communicate as language. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, and so I would make a strong case for that. And in the conferences, did you by chance come to my conference in Fishers? No, because the ITSE conference, okay. the Indiana Infant Toddler Conference. Was at the same time? Yeah, I remember that. I remember that. I was just going to say, if you've been to the conference, you know, I talk about that a lot. With I take everything that we are working on with the kid, even if it's not words yet, but I relate everything back to talking. I say kids have to be social before they can talk. Kids have to understand words before they can talk and make everything a part of that process because when we don't do that, parents don't think it's important. But if we can somehow relate it to what they're big concern is, and usually for developmental therapists, it's to kind of piggyback on with that language. Kate, are you ready to kind of chime in on that now? Yes. Um, and I know you do that. I absolutely do. And if, you know, um, I don't know how unique I am as far as a developmental interventionist. I think for sure in southern Indiana, um, there are developmental therapists playing speech therapists, and by that I mean there may not be speech therapists available, and so they may see one child on a team with a speech therapist, and the next child they may go in and target communication specifically right. as a developmental therapist. Do you do that in your practice as well? Um, not as much, but probably every child I see, of course, has a speech goal. Right. So you must be in a bigger area where there are more speech therapists because like I said, in southern Indiana, there was there was a real lack of speech therapists, as there is in uh, Kentucky, and I see a lot of kids for speech, really. But 
sure. even if I'm on a team with a speech therapist, and it, you know, I'm going to say the same sorts of things that Laura just said about you know, I know that you're really concerned that Johnny's not talking more, but until he can engage in this kind of play for at least a you know specific amount of time or a few minutes in any case, because she's right, and you know, a lot of times there have been times I've wanted to say. What do you mean talk? He can't even sit and play with his toy for a minute, you know, but the parents don't get that a lot of times, and they, what they really want is for their kids to talk. And Laura does a great job of talking about the prerequisite skills for language, and and parents don't realize that oftentimes, but it's kind of our job to talk to them about that. And even if you feel like, well, I'm not specifically targeting, targeting communication, if that's the end goal for the parents, I think it's totally reasonable to say, if you want your child to talk, you need to, you know, watch me as I do this and spend some time each day trying to engage your child in the same activities because if you want him to talk, he needs to be able to do this first. And if if that's their bottom line, that's their bottom line, whether that's specifically your goal or not, doesn't, you know, you're... You may say your your outcome on that IFSP may say, you know, the child will engage in pretend play for ten minutes, whatever. I don't know how what the wording sounds like, I and mean, I know it changes uh, on a regular basis, as does ours here in Kentucky. But you know, there's going to be some pretend play based goal, and it doesn't matter that it doesn't say so that he can talk. You know, or so that he'll be able to communicate verbally or something. But if that's what the parent and and I feel like, do you feel like that, that most of your parents that is, say you're you're seeing a two-year-old or a two-and-a-half-year-old, they may say, well, I don't really know whether well, the play stuff, whatever, he plays okay, he just doesn't talk. Exactly, and that's, absolutely. That's and, what and they and care they're about. Very, sure, and they're very happy even if the child is just imitating, and I'm not, you know, totally satisfied with that. I want them to be spontaneous, and I think mm-hmm. that, as a developmental therapist, of course, that's my goal, and parents don't always understand that. You know, and I would say to you, Tricia, that's a big opportunity for you then to get really good at coming up with what you can say to change their minds. And so many times parents don't recognize the value in what you're doing because we haven't told them. We we don't do a good job of say, tying it to what they want their kid to do. And so that's my point about if they, you know, quote, unquote, I just want them to talk, I can't tell you how many times, you know, I've heard that and you've heard that and Kate's heard that and every other person that does our job. We have to make what we do relative to what their long-term goal is or they're not going to put any value in it. They're not going to put any credence with that. So I think if you take whatever their issue is and relate it, um, you're going to get better participation then. And you can say he is imitating, and I love that, and imitation is a way to talking. We cannot, a child really doesn't learn how to communicate or doesn't learn how to play without imitating first. That's one of the foundational skills, but he is ready for the next step, and here's how we're going to get there. And so you use it as an opportunity to tell them about the sequence of development and tell them why you're an important member of that team and constantly kind of reiterate. And that's why parent education needs to happen. Like the second we put our foot across the threshold of a door 
and not stop until the door has closed right behind us. You know, that's just critical with when we're working with our babies in birth to three programs and, and letting parent education be so that they don't have to sit and kind of wonder or think, well, all she does is play. I could do that. Right. You know, you've got to, you've got to <laughs> give them that value. You've got to tell them, and I say in the conferences, you've got to tell them the science behind what you do because otherwise they don't know. And we often are so good at playing because that's what developmentally, what's developmentally appropriate for our kids that parents forget. They don't realize, gosh, there's some real scientific stuff going on here. There's some real educational value going on here. But they don't know that until you tell them what that is. So I would spend lots of time kind of thinking about the goals that you have for kids and what kinds of things parents normally say to you about it so that you've got some good responses ready and aren't kind of floundering for words and so that you kind of cut some parents off at the pass, you know, before they even have a chance to kind of act like that or say that to you so that you're telling them, you know, from the the next time you hit the door, hey, we're going to play today, and we are playing so that your kid can learn blah, 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 and we want him to learn blah, blah, blah so that he can talk or so that he can attend or so that he, you know, whatever your big long-term outcome is, so that you're stating that to them so that they understand that and value that. And when we get better at that, you don't really have a ton of those questions or I've found, when I do a better job of that up front, I mean, you still may have some picky parents every now and then they are going to kind of pick you apart no matter what you do. But for the most part, when we get better at presenting it that way up front, then they don't have as many questions. And that's hard to do. I mean, that's hard to learn how to do. I know lots of therapists struggle with that. Um, and I hope that's what you were asking. Is that what you were talking about? Have we still answered their questions? I'm finding in my area a lot of parents, you know, of course, even at two, are pushing, you know, letters and colors and shapes oh. and things like that. <laughs> and even other oh. therapists are doing that. And so I'm like, but wait, there's other so therapists, much more yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know, you know, and it's sad when, as the developmental interventionist or the developmental therapist on the team, you are more concerned with functional language than the speech therapist. I sure, hate absolutely, that. absolutely, and I think that's yeah. one of my main frustrations because these they see this other therapist who maybe is going along with sure we can learn letters and and colors yeah. and and we're going to work not, on all like, the colors okay. even though the child doesn't know that a ball is a ball. Yeah, great. Exactly. He'll know it's red though. <laughs> You know, I mean, I think what you were talking about, Tricia, is universal, and you are just, you know, I talk to parents all the time about, do you really care if he can say, octagon, you know, and not ask for milk or not know how to get his shoes? And so you be the voice of reason on that team, and you be the person that says, I don't care about numbers, colors, and letters, and shapes. We want him to learn real words, and that's what I'm here for. You know, you guys can do whatever you want to do in that other session. That's great. But here's what I'm going to do, and here's why I think this is what's going to be the most productive way to spend our time every week because I want him to understand words so that he can use words. And when I'm talking about real words, and I don't really see that he's going to have a reason to ask you for the triangle today. 
you know, and be <laughs> real blunt about it. Parents appreciate that, I promise. And when you get brave enough to kind of say it, and again, not maybe not as funky as I'm kind of presenting it here, but, you know, when they know that you know what you're doing and why you're doing it, they respect that and they will clamor to get on your side and on your page about that. So just, um, you know, keep keep talking about it and explain to parents why you're working on what you're working on. And, you know, again, sometimes parents ask us questions or say things and we feel a little bit defensive, like we have to kind of argue for what we're doing. But at the same time, most most of the time parents are saying that because they don't know any different. They don't know any better. So when you educate them and you say, we're not going to work on that and here's the reason why, they start to kind of shake their heads and go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, I, and Kate and I hate numbers, letters, colors, and shapes. I mean, we talk about that all the time. And I tell parents, until your child is using phrases and has about 50 words in his vocabulary, I'm not going to focus on that or even use that as one of our words in therapy. And they kind of get that, too, because you say, I, I want him to use real language. I want him to use words that are going to make it difference in his daily life and they'll they'll get that when you're talking about it and hopefully some of those other people on your teams that are doing it what i believe to be the wrong way you know hopefully you can you can be an educator for your uh, therapist in your area as well sure oh i'm sorry no, I'm sorry. Um, I just wanted to mention one other thing. Um, I heard your podcast last week, and you were talking about, you know, um, play-based therapy with autism. And right. I didn't know if you're aware there was a um, research study done at IU where they are developing um, intervention for toddlers with autism. And it is developmental and play-based, and it's just amazing. I've had several clients that have gone through this um, study, and it's the results are just astounding. Well, that is great. And, you know, uh, Kate and I have been doing play-based therapy with kids with autism for, oh, probably 15 years now. So <laughs> we think that is great. I don't know what that specific program is, but certainly we believe that that floor time approach and that relationship-based approach where we're using real-life developmentally appropriate activities, which would be toys, for uh, children that are on the spectrum and that are toddlers and, you know, more power to them, that's fantastic. That's the approach that we certainly have been using for a long, long time now. So I'm glad other people are researching it so that we can have some good data to back up the kinds of things that we've been talking about for a long time here. Absolutely. Hey, Tricia, are you still there? Yes. Because you were brave enough to call the show today, let me ask you, Have you? do you have any of my stuff? Do you have any of my DVDs or anything? I have your book. Oh. Well, what DVD would you like for me to send you as a thank you for calling the show today? I have. Ooh. You can email me that after the show, and I will be glad to send you that. It's my gift for... Again, being brave enough to call the show because we have not had callers in a couple of weeks, and I just want to thank you for that. So you can look on the website at teachmenetalk.com to check out uh, whether you want Teach Me to Talk or Teach Me to Talk with Apraxia or the Listen and Obey series, and I'll be glad to send that to you as my thank you for calling. Thank you. Is there one that you would recommend, um, even with using with parents? Uh, teach Me to Talk. Therapist? Okay. I think it's the first one. It outlines kind of the basic, the strategies, the six most common strategies, and in my opinion, the most successful strategies that we want to implement when children first begin therapy. And I think 
those kind of building block pieces in place, it makes everything else a lot easier. So even when parents say, you know, my kid has apraxia or my kid doesn't really understand language yet, I still say that Teach Me to Talk is a great beginner because it talks about being playful and how important play is. And more importantly, it's got lots of examples of video clips with therapy with with uh, me, with ta- lots of different kinds of kids and, and using lots of cool toys, but how to work that language into play. So please email me, Laura, at teachmetotalk.com and, with your address, and I will be glad to send you that DVD. Thank you so much. Thank oh, you. Oh, you're welcome, Trisha, and thanks I, I so much for calling. Say, are you still there? Yes. Yeah, she's still there. Okay. Go ahead. I was just going to say two things. One Great plug on IU. My daughter's there, so and I graduated from IU, so I'm I'm going to find out about that study. And also, and I know that they have the autism program there, and they it's a great great group. But anyway, on your topic, when you when you watch that DVD, I, I really not only do I relate pretend play to communication or a language goal ultimately. I relate everything I do, whether it's trying to engage a kid socially, whether it's trying to get a kid to play with a basic toy functionally, whether it's pretty much everything, because that's what they care about, and whether they really get the connection intellectually or not, it doesn't matter. What they need to know is it's important that your kid will do Ring Around the Rosie with you, because if you want him to be a functional communicator, he needs to be able to do that. Whether You know what I mean? I, I relate Absolutely. everything I do. And then they kind of go, oh, okay, then I guess it's important. Yes, it is. So what's important is that they realize the importance of it, not necessarily the actual connection in my mind. I mean, if it's a mother who'd understand it, I'd try and talk about it, but mostly they just want them to talk. So, And mostly I just want them to to know that, that um, their child's not going to be a functional communicator until they have that social engagement, until they have basic functional play, until they can attend for more than a minute and a half, you know, all those prerequisite skills that we all know are terribly important, but parents don't always get, and we may not be able to adequately educate them, but we can help them to realize, oh, I have to play with them, he has to look at me, Um, you know, (laughs) has to do more than push the button on the toy. So, and the way to sell it, if you will, is to to relate it to what they care about talking. Right. Yeah. So. Right. Thank you so much. That helps a lot. Well, thank you, and enjoy the DVD. All right. Thanks for calling. I will. Thank you. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Okay. All right. I think that's the end of the show. Hey, next week I still have probably three or four super-duper questions from the Louisiana conferences, and these were all from women who are professionals. They're speech pathologists or special instructors, but they were asking about their own grandchildren. And, Kate, neither you nor I are in that phase of our life yet, but I could just see us talking about the same stuff and being concerned about the same stuff. So next week we have three great questions about that. And the other thing I want us to talk about next week, too, and this will be a little tease for that, when is it too much therapy? When is there therapy overload? Because I had two different therapists ask me great questions about that. So we will talk about those topics next week. Sounds great. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye -bye.